A reading from Leviticus. Here the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very edges of the field, or gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare, or gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, and you shall not lie to one another. And you shall not swear falsely by my name, profaning the name of God, I am the Lord. You shall not defraud your neighbor, you shall not steal, and you shall not keep for yourself the wages of a laborer until morning. You shall not revile the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. You shall fear your God, I am the Lord. You shall not render an unjust judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. Within, with justice you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not profit by the blood of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate in your heart anyone of your kin. You shall reprove your neighbor, or you will incur guilt yourself. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The word of the Lord. A reading from 1 Corinthians. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building on it. Each builder must choose with care how to build on it, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one that has been laid. That foundation is Jesus Christ. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If you think that you are wise in this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast about human leaders, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. The word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. 
Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For God makes the sun rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The Gospel of the Lord. This is the last Sunday in Epiphany when we get to hear the teaching of Jesus. Next week we'll have the Transfiguration and then then it'll be Lent. And so these words I want to suggest to you invite us into really a different kind of epiphany, one that, one, one that I think we can grow into the rest of the year. And uh, it, it, it helps to know that in that reading from uh, Corinthians, that when Paul says, you are being built into God's holy temple, that's not second person singular, you. Of course, the consequence of that, right, has been a lot of a lot of rules about what we can do with our bodies and what we can't. No, instead, and and this is where it'd be great if Paul were in Texas, uh, it ought to be read, y'all are being built into God's (laughs) holy temple. Sometimes Texas just has its way, you know. So y'all are being built, and of course, the question is, who are the y'all? When it says, you all, of course, the answer is, all of you. All y'all, right? <laughs> Thanks, appreciate that. And um, it's a really strong image. When I, when I um, 10 years ago, actually 13 years ago now, my wife and I went to, to Dresden and lived there to learn a little bit of German. And Dresden was this city that was firebombed in 1944 in a punitive campaign by the Allies. And so there was this ginormous church called the Frauenkirche, made completely out of limestone, a dome so thick that a hundred years earlier people besieged the cities and cannonballs literally bounced off the top of the dome. People were completely safe in there. In 1944 though with this incendiary firebombing the church was reduced to a pile of black rubble, completely scorched. And so they went about in the late 90s with a way to rebuild the church and they there wasn't a lot to be salvaged, and of course, as you know, it would have been a lot easier to clear the rubble and start over, but they didn't do that. Some German, <laughs> it had to be German to do this, some German developed a computer program for the sole purpose of reusing every burned block that was structurally load-bearing. And so, they, this is, and this is 13 years ago when computers were really, you know, not great. Well, I don't think they were anyway. And, and so uh, they had done this, and you could see the schematic of where the new pieces should be and where the burned pieces could be. And if you've been there today in Dresden, 
you can visit the church. They've now completely rebuilt it. One of the eight huge windows is made entirely out of blackened stones, and there's a few blackened stones in the dome, and the rest is, of course, brand new limestone that they've had to come and replace. So most of the building is light tan, and then there's these blackened blocks that are the remnant of the bombing. And, you know, I think what Jesus is maybe inviting us to imagine is that the world is full of people who are burned and broken and some people are even evildoers, we might want to say. And this is what God's temple looks like. It is a building made of neat, shiny, pretty stones that are people who are righteous and do all the right things all the right time. Us, of course. And then, and then in God's temple... Those buildings, those pieces of block that we thought were useless, that had no part in being God's temple, God as master German architect is able to weave them into a structure that is not only load-bearing, but see bears testament that God can make all things new. That God can take even the people that we think have no future or present value, or hope, and knit them with us into a temple, one singular temple for the Holy Spirit. The truth is, I am not a temple for the Holy Spirit, but I with you am. And it's about those broken and busted blocks that I think Jesus invites us to consider this this week when he says... You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, but I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. Now, now you know, if we take this strictly literally, and there are some people who do this, Mennonites, Quakers, Amish, right? You, you know about this. These are people who are extreme pacifists. They don't resist at all. In fact, there's a movie that plays to this, and maybe you've seen it before, Harrison Ford. This is from, like, 1983, Witness, where Harrison Ford goes under co- undercover as an Amish guy. And there's some tourists that come to make fun of the Amish, right? Because they know the Amish people can't fight back. So they buy an ice cream cone, and they shove it in an Amish guy's face. And the Amish guy, being a pacifist, just stands there. Harrison Ford blows his cover when he goes and beats the guy up with the ice cream. He was pretending to be Amish. This is, this is, he's blown his cover. Okay. Um, well, I thought it was a great example. All right, anyway. We, we could do that. We could take it very literally. But I'd like you to know that a little, little bit of nuancing is going on here in Greek. Actually, it might be better rendered, do not resist an evildoer with evil yourself. Or, do not resist the evil of violence by being violent. And then Jesus goes on to say these sort of three strange things. If someone strikes you on your right cheek, turn the left. If someone sues you for uh, your suit, it, it says your cloak, give them your tunic. And really what Jesus says, if someone sues you for your suit, give them your underwear too. And if someone makes you go one mile, make them go, uh, you go another one, willingly. And it turns out the reason Martin Luther King's on the cover of the bulletin today is because these three things were formative for both Martin Luther King and Gandhi in understanding how they were to resist the evils of British colonial oppression in India and how they were to resist Jim Crow in the South. And we all know it wasn't through strict pacifism. We know that. 
And so it's worth spending a little bit of time. Now, this is really nerdy. And I can tell you, when I do the first one, you're going to say, not convincing. When I do the second one, maybe more. By the time you get to the third one, I hope you see that there's this, there's this pattern here that, that results in some real strong shrewdness. I mean, the real question is, how is it that when evil is being done, we're able to stop it or resist it without being evil ourselves? This is a great question, right? Because we teach our kids, two wrongs don't make a right. And if hitting's wrong and we hit the hitter, we just became what we said we shouldn't be. Right? So I think this is pretty serious stuff cognitively, but also how we're, supposed to, how we're supposed to live as this one big temple. So what about the cheek? Well, it turns out, and, and this is still true today, that the most diminutive way to hit somebody, I think, is with the back of your hand. Right? The back of your hand, the backhand slap. This is what you would do as a master to your slave. You're showing them complete condescension. There's been a lot of work on this. New Testament scholar Walter Wink among them. Um, that when you slap a slave or, or your inferior or whoever it is that you think is beneath you with the back, of their, the back of your hand and they turn and present you the other cheek, the question becomes how will you hit them now? Well, not with the back of your hand, because that's the way up here. <laughs> not with your left hand, because you didn't do anything with your left hand in the ancient world except one thing. It's still true in parts of the world. No, you, your choice to hit them back now is either with your fist or with your palm. Now, I know this sounds really strange, but to hit somebody beneath you with your fist acknowledges that they can actually fight back, that they're worth having a fight with. Smacking someone with the back of your hand is diminutive. There's no fighting back to that. So notice that if the person turns their other cheek, what they're doing is saying, hit me like an equal. Hardly just pacifism. Now again, I told you, you'd be unconvinced after the first one. The second one has to do with rights to sue. So it wasn't so long ago, even in this country, that a number of people were subsistence farmers, right? And if you had a bad harvest, all of your seed for next year came on loan. I mean, you didn't own anything. You, owned, you owed your soul to the company store, as the song goes, right? And so there were certain rights that debt owners had. They could collect your house and your property. They could collect your cloak, that is your suit, your outward garment. But they couldn't take your tunic, which really amounts to your nighty. They couldn't take your nighty because then you'd be naked. And that'd be awful, wouldn't it? Having people go around naked. I mean, you can't take everybody's. You can't take everything away from people, says the law. So imagine this. I mean, you're born on the land. You have a bad harvest. How are you supposed to eat? It's a desert. It's hot during the day, but it's really, really cold at night. So you lose your robe, and now you're in your nighty, and it's cold. And someone says, you owe me your land, I've already foreclosed that. You owe me your house, I've foreclosed that. Give me your robe, because it's my legal right to have it. And there, you give them the robe, and then you give them the nighty too. And of course, you'd be standing there naked. And the question is, in that moment, who is going to be more embarrassed? You or the person who has now made you naked. If you're unconvinced still, here's number three. Going the extra mile. We usually say it as, he really went the extra mile, he did a great job. Going the extra mile is about as civilly disobedient as you can be. 
Because in the ancient world, a Roman soldier could make anybody carry their 60-pound pack, 60 to 80 pounds, actually, for one mile on the marked Roman road, one mile. And that means you're in the middle, as a subsistence farmer, of doing something like milking the cows or collecting the eggs or doing whatever you're doing, making the bread. And the soldier can come to you and say, hey, pick up my pack, you're going a mile. That's going to take you 15 to 20 minutes. Now, I can do one in 10, but for most people, right, that's 15 to 20 minutes with a lot of weight. And then you've got to walk back. And you're a subsistence farmer. How are you going to do, how are you going to forego an hour worth of labor a day and be exhausted? That was their right. If you resisted, they could flog you. But the law was written in such a way that they could only make you go one mile. And it turns out that if they made you go more than one mile, they could in turn be flogged for being abusive. So imagine the scenario. Here comes that soldier again, calling you away from your work again. You don't like him. I mean, it would be like if Mexico invited the United, invaded the United States and the Mexican soldiers made you carry stuff down the road. You wouldn't joyfully do it. There you go carrying the pack, and you get to the mile marker, and you just keep right on walking. You know what that soldier would say? Stop! <laughs> You've gone the first mile, give me the pack or I'll get some other slave to carry it. And you keep going. So imagine how the dynamic of power gets overturned in all three ways. And hopefully now that you've heard all three, it sort of makes sense going backward. I told you the first one you weren't going to like, but the other two, you know, make a little bit more sense. Right? And notice, in all three of these situations, something that's inherently wrong, the ability to treat people like your donkey, right? the ability to take people's entire livelihood. After all, when you take their cloak and their house, how are they going to make money tomorrow? I mean, you're essentially creating a class of beggars who have to beg. When you can go around and strike people diminutively because you are some kind of petty noble compared to them, what kind of equity are we living in? So all three of these are ways in which we're able to resist evil without becoming evil ourselves. And, and, and here goes the story of how Gandhi did this. So Gandhi read these stories before he became an attorney in South Africa. You know, that's where he started out. And in South Africa at the time, there were a lot of Indians from India who had come and they were building things like railroads and, and building infrastructure in South Africa. And they were required to carry photo IDs. And if they didn't have them, they could really be harassed, right? In fact, imprisoned and beat up even. And so Gandhi decided that the whole system was not just because none of the Afrikaners had to have these cards. In fact, many immigrants from other countries didn't have to be registered. And so Gandhi made this program of, uh, they were going to have these, these sort of public bonfires where people would come and burn their IDs as a way of protesting, okay? And it's the day of the bonfire, and of course, there's the South African... Um, officer there because this is against the law to do and there goes Gandhi up to the fire to burn the cart and the policeman knocked him to the ground with the stick right just walking up to the fire so he gets up you know he he dusts himself off collects himself gets his head right 
picks up the card, and he goes toward the fire again, and he gets knocked down a second time. Dusts himself off, gets up, picks up the card, goes toward the fire again. And Gandhi, when he tells the story, said, I knew I got him on the third one. <laughs> because before he hit me the third time, he hesitated. He did hit him a third time. Gandhi got up again, this time he's bleeding, picks up the card and goes, and this time the policeman just stepped back. He didn't know what to do with a person that wasn't hitting back. And this was how Gandhi read Jesus. If he'd fought the officer, if he'd fought violently, he would have become the kind of oppressive force that had put him in this situation in the first place. So how did he resist? Nonviolently. Now, this might sound strange to you, but many of you saw this footage on the news in the 60s. This is that footage when Martin Luther King and those folks were walking uh, in Selma. And he was on national news, and I'm pretty sure this is, this is what helped the Civil Rights Act pass, is you saw these people who were just walking, and you saw police officers spraying them with fire hoses and dogs going and attacking them, and the people just got up and kept walking. This was on the national news. This was on the world news. And people said, what are those police doing? Those people aren't fighting back. How can they keep spraying them? Part of what I think Jesus is trying to say is, there's a way that we can resist injustice without becoming unjust ourselves. But I want to tell you, this is the careful edge for me, because, you know, in my, my very lawyer-prone brain, I like to think this is master strategy, you know? I mean, I mean, this is Jesus, the chess player, who really knows how to get the rules changed. But there's a caveat here, because he goes on to say, love your enemies. Love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. And see, I think the real thing in both South Africa and in India and in the United States was if Gandhi didn't actually love those people, and if Martin Luther King didn't actually love white people, it wouldn't have worked. It would have been just another little niche strategy or some way of fighting back instead of saying this is unjust for all of us. Now, I think these nonviolent uh, Social disobedience strategies only worked because the people doing them actually cared about the oppressors too. They actually thought that in God's master architect brain that the rubble could be knit together into a temple for the Holy Spirit that included everybody and not just themselves. And that's why we get this injunction. And you see, we read in Leviticus and we read it in Jesus and the words are the same. In Leviticus, God says, be holy as I am holy. In Matthew, the translation reads, be perfect as I am perfect. And I want you to know, biblically, they say the same thing. The good news is that holiness is not about perfection, actually. Holy is a little bit better word. And it's not a category of piety. It doesn't mean be real religious because God likes to go to church. <laughs> That's not, not what sometimes God likes to go to church, I guess. Sunday mornings are a good time. Um, it doesn't mean that at all. In fact, You've got to think about, and this is really helpful, if you know anything about rabbinic Judaism, a lot of the rules in Judaism are set up so that the people will be distinct from other people. So think about what you know about food laws. You can't have meat with dairy, and you can't eat rabbits or uh, pigs 
or camels or horses. You can't eat any of this. And here's the rabbinic rule when people say, why can't we do that? The answer is, according to the book of Deuteronomy, because everybody else does that. And you've got to be different from everybody else. According to the book of Leviticus, why can't you wear garments made out of two kinds of fabric? Because everybody else does that, and you will not be like everybody else. And of course, what Jesus is saying is, we are called to be unlike, unlike the normal, and not just with the exterior, no, no, with the interior. See, what's normal is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's normal. And Jesus says, you be set apart, you be holier than that. No. You pray for those who persecute you. You find a way in your imagination to integrate those people you think are godless into stones holding the Holy Spirit. That's holiness for Jesus. Has nothing to do with garments or what you eat. Has to do with how you treat people that deserve to be treated poorly. Has everything to do with how we treat people who are already being treated poorly. Has everything to do with whether we do the right thing even when the wrong thing's been done to us. If you're like me, you're going to need more imagination. And maybe that's something just ahead of length that we might pray for, right? That our Lenten discipline might be imagining how those burned out people, those bricks that are left over from firebombing of Dresden, God can possibly knit into a kingdom of God that holds the Holy Spirit because the truth is without them, without those blocks, there'd be holes in the roof. We are better off in God's kingdom with those people than without them. Beyond that, we are called to do business in a different way than we're used to. We're called to go to extra expense to include blocks that are not includable, like the Germans did. <laughs> and so my prayer for this, this epiphany, and this is some really powerful writing here in the, in the prayer book, this is the College for Peace. It's my prayer for myself, and it's my prayer for us. Eternal God, in whose perfect kingdom no sword is drawn but the sword of righteousness, no strength known but the strength of love, so mightily spread abroad your spirit that all peoples may be gathered under the banner of the Prince of Peace as children of one Father, to whom be dominion and glory now and forever. Amen.